Hello and welcome back to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. First thing I'd like to say is thank you to everybody for being very patient with the podcast. I know I've been quite intermittent with it and I apologize with that. You don't need to know much about my life, but I'm spinning lots of plates now once I've left the military. So I'm going to try and put as many podcasts out as I can. Uh, They may be a little bit intermittent, but they're still going to be coming out. So if you keep an eye on your social media platforms, I'll be putting out the posts through the social media platforms so you know when they are coming out. And on this episode this week, we're going to be talking to a lady who was the longest serving air crewman in the British RAF and she was an air crewman on the Chinook uh, helicopters. She served a couple of tours in Iraq and did 10, yes I did say 10, 10 tours in Afghanistan. She's now touring around doing lots of talks talking about mental health and well-being and her experiences. This is an absolutely fascinating chat and also goes really in depth into the mental health space of service personnel. So please enjoy my conversation with Liz McConaughey. between our last one and this one so I'll just let you fire away well look we're rolling with it welcome to the podcast (laughs) thanks for having me it's so nice to be here again I wore my Waka Waka hoodie specially and um it's just turned properly winter in Basingstoke so I was like yeah dig out the proper hoodies at the minute (laughs) well I I feel a little bit let down uh, and I'll tell you why is because this is the second time we've done this and uh and last time you were wearing your Royal Marines hoodie. My Royal Marines hoodie, yeah, that Rick Cole sent me, yeah. So um, I uh, I do, yeah, I, I end up with a para hoodie over the summer and then Rick um, Cole, one of the Marine guys, sent me a, a lovely pink Marine hoodie. And um, yeah, it's, and then after I got sent that one, I got, and I posted it on Twitter, I got hundreds of messages from people going, right, we're sending you an engineer's one now, we're sending you an, uh, in a logistics one, we're sending you a RAF regiment one. So I was like, no, no, no. So I had to stop it somewhere. But uh, so I've gone with Foursquare UK today because <laughs> they put out a nice pop, pop post about me yesterday. It's quite funny, really, because you've become quite in demand, haven't you? I've been, uh, whether social media is a, is a smoke and mirror kind of thing, because um, sometimes it can be, you know, people make out that they're a lot busier than they are, but you genuinely seem to have kind of everything's ramped up for you, which is a positive thing. Absolutely. I mean, the book came out, which I'm sure we're going to come on to later, but the book came out in September last year and I kind of just bubbled away in the background for a couple of months. And it seemed to be from like January this year that it started to build. And I think that's because it takes like there's a lag time where people, everyone buys the book because it's all exciting. And I think the first run must have mostly been my friends, but um, then it takes a while for everyone to read it. And then hopefully my book, you know, the content of it speaks for itself. So after people had read it, that's when people started to kind of really start to follow my story and kind of because it's very open and honest about mental health struggles and whatnot and it's kind of just keeps snowballing from there so you're right like the last the August was nice and quiet but I have just been mentally busy since then but um yeah I'm still loving it I still pinch myself every day that um I'm living this wonderful life considering how close it was to not being wonderful so I'm very lucky I mean I don't I don't want you to tell me all of your secrets but um do you do you genuinely kind of do you reach out to people or is it more of a case that people get in touch with you to to come and do um you know the speaking piece of things 
Yeah, no, all of it comes to me. So I've only just about three weeks ago employed a marketing company now who are doing a lot of my marketing in and around the book. But um, all the talks and stuff I do, it seems to be like I do one talk and then two people there go, oh, let's get her for this company or, and it's just kind of snowballing. And a lot of the stuff comes off the back of podcasts, you know, like we're doing today, you get people just listen to them and go, oh, I'd love to have Liz along to talk at the company. And I did a, a few bits on Sky earlier this year. So people see me on Sky News and kind of got me in after a few bits and bobs. So it's really organic at the minute, which I kind of like because it means that every time I do a booking, I kind of am chatting to the people who, and they've contacted me directly. So they kind of already know a little bit about my story. So that's kind of nice. And I'm registered with some speaking companies. So I've been doing, they kind of get me a few gigs, but the majority of it is just the power of social media, which is quite new to me really, because for a long time, I was just a Facebooker girl. When the whole time I was in the forces, it was just Facebook, no, the book. <laughs> now I, I'm like managing six social media platforms on a daily basis. So it's a bit, a bit mad. Yeah, it is. It is nuts, isn't it? Um, I'm I'm very similar to you. I've got I've got my personal account, I've got the podcast account, I've then got my therapy business and now the the breathwork um business that I've I'm just starting up. So it, it trying to manage all those sort of things and also have your own life that isn't a real life really on on social media. It um I think it, it, when you come to like that mindful piece it's really kind of just trying to put it down because it sucks you in like a black vortex or a black hole doesn't it yeah and you're right you know just the word you said about having your own life in the back that's not on social media I am very close to living my entire life on social media and I'm very aware of it at the minute because I don't at the minute I mean I'm like sound like a right boring old 41 year old but I just don't have a social life at the minute because all of my life is out doing work and stuff um and you know even I, I'm going I, I went to a really good event a couple of weeks ago for healing military minds which was a military ball but you know I was one of the guest speakers so you can I kind of go and um it was by the end of the night I had about a thousand new friends but at the start of the night I didn't know anyone I kind of go there on my own to do my little talk and I always end up having a great time but I don't I'm very bad at like fitting in my own stuff now and just kind of going I'm just going to do whatever I want to do this weekend it just doesn't happen at the minute so I need to be quite aware of that you it's a good point you make but that's a, that's a good thing though really you you go to somewhere that you don't really know anybody but this is kind of one of the things that I wanted to kind of talk to you about it is the fact that you are doing so so much of this stuff at the moment and it does lead on to other opportunities like you're saying but i don't know whether you want to be honest with this or not because this is kind of like a a, a a a quite a deep question really is do you do you enjoy doing it and the reason why i ask that is because i know what it's like to repeat things over and over again so when you go to different talks even though you're telling people um about your story and about your life and the 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 challenges that you've overcome it can almost kind of become uh you know you're just pressing play right traumatized yeah that's such a good question Ads. so the answer is at the minute yes and i i do know but it wasn't always like this so Book came out in September. I started the speaking kind of circuit very loosely in January. I already had a, I've had a full-time job. So I was kind of just going and, and doing the odd thing at nighttime and kind of trying to promote the book really. And standing on stage and just spilling your heart out by the day you tried to end your life is exactly as you just said, really re-traumatizing. 
And I hadn't realized at the time, I was just throwing myself at everything. And anything that came in and anyone wanted me, I was like, yes, 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 yes. And uh, end of January, I just went into a massive mental hole again. And I was back in with the counselor and whatnot. And it was only then I realized that all I'd been doing for a whole month was just re-traumatizing myself every single day. Um, so I'm much more aware of that now. So kind of February, March, I kind of really tapered it a lot. And then I think I just needed that time to kind of decompress a bit. And then from, uh, I went limited company doing this talking circuit from about March, April onwards. And now I'm okay that I still only allow myself to do two big gigs a week because I just think it's not even about the re-traumatizing myself while I'm telling my story. It's more about that constant jogging pace and not giving your brain time to process it because I kind of know what I'm going to say on the stage anymore. I think the main thing I'm getting now is, and I love it, but it's people share their trauma or their stories at the end of the day whenever I've been up on a stage talking and I always encourage them to do that you know I know my story but I don't know theirs and I love love engaging with people at the end but that in itself can be quite a lot to take home sometimes because you end up this thing called trauma transference and you end up just driving the whole way back from a talk thinking about that one person who's been crying on your shoulder at the end of a talk which I've had a couple of weeks ago a, a lady just found up at the end wanted a quiet space to go and chat to me and just broke down in tears and she had a lot going on and felt safe enough to tell me, and I didn't know this girl for me, you know, she was a complete stranger, um, and then had another guy reach out to me on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, and he was going to kill himself that night, and he just reached out to me, it unfolded throughout the morning of me having to get the police involved and whatnot, because I was so concerned about this guy, and then they managed to get a hold of him, and he's, in, he's getting help now, but, you know, I've kind of become this beacon for people, which I'm really privileged to be, but I'm very aware that I can take on other people's stuff, so I just need to always have a day at the end where I can, like, empty out the bucket a bit. So I'm quite aware of that now. Ever thought about going to do some, like, you know, we I know we mentioned it before, uh, those trim courses and those trauma courses to be able to to be able to deal with it because I, you know, um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what you're qualified in, but I can imagine it, you're not qualified in, you know, and trauma and management no. for people. No, I used to be a trim instructor, was in the RAF, that was great. And that was in the early days because the Marines were so good at that. You know, you guys brought trim in post. I think it was from the Falklands, wasn't it? Originally, that's where trim was kind of the, the the basis behind trim and the thought thing behind you guys sailing back and the powers all flying back. But um, yeah, so I, I kind of got the, I got trim practitioner take really early on in the forces, but never really. We were shockingly bad at it, and that we, I think the RAF got it as a box ticking exercise, like we're looking after our people because we're getting everyone trim qualified. But actually, in terms of well, what do we actually do with that now? Like, how do we, you know, when people do genuinely break down? none of us really knew what to do so um so I am a trim but you're right and I'm going to need to do a mental health first aider course so I'm hoping to do one of those at some point the rifles funny enough they um the rifles regiment they have they do a lot of courses online now for their guys so and girls and they've invited me along to do some of their free training with them which would be um and they've been hit quite hard with suicide rates since Herrick so you know, it's front and foremost in their minds at the minute. So if I can jump on that with them, then that would be really good because there's nothing better than sitting in a room of like-minded people when you're learning that kind of stuff. So yeah, I need to do more. Exactly. I think what I need to do is do a little description about you before, you know, we're five minutes in and we're just kind <laughs> of like chuckling along. Yeah, right. I know some people don't really put stuff into the bios and stuff. So um, so you former RAF uh, Air Chinook, Air Chinook, that's not really a thing, is it? R.E.F. Chinook crewman. Yeah. A uh, couple of tours in Iraq, 10 tours of Afghanistan. 
you were the longest serving female Chinook crewman. Do you like the way I look down then to read that off? Because I wrote yeah. it down. Yeah, I, can't, I haven't got the mental capacity to hold <laughs> things in my head. Uh, 17 years of uh, service. Uh, and now you know, you're into or you are a motivational speaker. You wrote a book called Chinook Chick. You've got another one that's on the burner. Yeah, another one on the way, hopefully. Or why not, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is pretty cool. And uh, also, uh, you were the winner of Women in Defence for 2023. Yeah, that was a mad one. Yeah, massive surprise that was. And still feel very uh, unworthy of that. <laughs> Didn't you get to some Irish awards recently as well? That's, yeah, that's in two weeks' time. So, okay. yeah, I won the Women in Defence Award, which was just mad. It was the Blue Light or the Defence Discount Service for running that award. And um someone I didn't even know nominated me for that so that was a bit crazy um because I spent my entire RAF career hiding from the fact that I was one of the only females I never want to be wheeled out like the token Doris for things like that so I've always shied away from it but actually now that I'm out I have to I think retrospectively look back and be quite proud that I was doing that job and and kind of hopefully had enough credibility throughout my career just by being good at my job not wanting to be a fanfared or red carpeted or applauded for being a woman doing it because if you go oh isn't she good she's doing it despite the fact she's a woman it's like saying that you're not capable in the first place so I always just got my head down and got on with it so to be recognized at the end of that's quite nice and I'm off on Monday to woman of the year award which is apparently quite a big thing in um in London um I think Lorraine off the tv is going to be there and a few other like womany celebrity people so um yeah, I'll have to try and watch my my crewman potty mouth on the day and, and be upstanding, upstanding female for the day and get my dress and high heels on. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm, quite exciting times at the minute. So yeah, see what see what happens. Every day is different. <laughs> I mean, you've probably been asked this quite a few times, and um, you know, coming from a, a an all male environment, dominated environment like I did in in the Marines, um, I always kind of struggled in a way because you it's that indoctrination you kind of um exposed to in the military um when it, when it comes to kind of like the people that you work with and i always found um you know again this is uh i don't mean this to be offensive to anybody but i always that found um especially as a long, young lad you know found it difficult to deal with being told what to do um by, by females because you're in that male dominated yeah. uh, environment and vicky verky I, I you know i could assume that being one of the only you know one of a few females in you know that early time you know nearly 20 years ago now there weren't that many um, females in kind of like the frontline jobs you know air crewmen being one of those especially kind of in that era of um afghanistan and, uh, and iraq it must have been something quite difficult to to deal with unless you've already kind of got that tomboy attitude towards things that i don't know maybe some people can develop i don't know yeah well i it's funny because i'm probably the girliest girl ever out of work but in work i am you know flanks on combat's on helmet on i'm guess one of the lads you know swearing away in the crew <laughs> like the best but equally I'm not that kind of like you know beer drinking rugby playing swilling you know kind of what people I think sometimes think females in the forces are you know I'm definitely I don't try to be one of the lads I'm dead but I am definitely a bit more tomboyish whenever I'm in whenever I was in uniform but as soon as we were on a, a landwear or a night out I'm high heels and little black dress girl but I think because I joined so young 
you know, in terms, you were saying about taking orders there. I joined on my 19th birthday and I was so naive when I joined. I had no military background whatsoever. I hadn't been in a cadets or anything. And I just went straight in for my levels at school. And I think that naivety was probably my greatest asset because, you know, when you're ironing your bed space at four o'clock in the morning for an inspection, you're like, if you were a normal adult who'd been in a working environment and a job, you would be a bit free thinking. You'd probably be like, what the hell am I doing? But I was like, okay, here's another hoop. Just jump through it. There's another hoop, jump through that. And, you know, ironing my bed, it just to pass the inspection seemed really normal. So I think that young naivety, definitely. And I think anyone who's watching this who's got any aspirations to join the forces, um, I think going, you know, there's an element where you can apply too young, I think. And sometimes you go in, you've got no experience under your belt and you could, you could be setting yourself up for failure there. But I think if you're a sponge, you're willing to learn and just absorb everything that the military throws at you, then you'll always have a good, you know, you'll, you'll have a good tangent on your career. And, you know, I look, I joined because I saw a magazine with a helicopter on the front of it and a guy hanging out the side and went, oh, my God, I so want to do that job. I know it was only 17 when I saw the magazine and then I attested to the queen on my 19th birthday. So I was really young, but I look back now and think if I'd have had that classic, well, it's a helicopter. I have absolutely no idea how to operate a helicopter and I don't know how to shoot a gun. I can't do that job. If I'd have had that like imposter syndrome thought process, then I never would have gone for it. And, you know, the forces don't expect you or me on day two of being in the military to be running around in Afghanistan with a massive weapon or flying around in 24 and a half ton helicopter and operating this massive machine on day two. You know, they train you up to do the job that they expect you to do. They'll never, I think very rarely put you in somewhere where you're not capable to be. And I think that's what youngsters looking at as a role going forward need to understand that, you know, they're not going to put you anywhere, but they haven't given you the adequate training. Now, I'm sure there's people <laughs> will disagree with that, but I do. I think in the big picture stuff, they don't expect you to go to a war zone on day two. So it's a great career for youngsters going in now, I think. I, I definitely used to give a little bit of advice to people, especially when they were younger, because I joined up when I was, I did my... Really young, yeah, I was like, "Wow, well, what?" I say that. I don't know. I think I, I think I was seventeen, eighteen when I did my potential Royal Marines course, so the week course before you, you know, you have to pass a few tests uh, to um, to to join the full time recruit train. And I was eight, eighteen, so similar to you, really. Yeah. But I, I I believe when I look back on it, in a bit of hindsight, is that I was I was too young, or um, my mental maturity wasn't wasn't there i'd done a bit of traveling you know uh, surfing and uh, traveling around the world um meeting new people and and things like that but when when i joined up i was very much a a rabbit in the headlights but a rabbit in the headlights that didn't have a um i didn't show enthusiasm i didn't show the 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 will that i wanted to be there even though like inside like, like i did um, so I used to get smashed a lot. I used to get thrashed a lot. I used to get shouted at quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, told that I was never going to pass out of training a lot. Yeah. Um, so so when I, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, fifteen years from that point when I was taking um, in the Marines, you've got a cool colonel's department that's in charge of. Uh, recruiting so they all the adverts you start see stuff on the tv and you know they have like our display team that um you know partake in this and they're the guys that are running about on, on the tv adverts and um 
you know when I, when we had this look at live course come through we had the uh the like the military um like schools come through and and, and people get like a little bit of an insight into what it's going to be like at the very end of it you know i used to say to them don't rush into doing it go away yeah. for a couple of years go and get a job go traveling go meet people you know have boyfriends have girlfriends have these experiences that's also a very good point yeah because that that is going to solidify yourself you, you know you mentally and you're it's two things like it solidifies you mentally but it also the truth is when you jump on the treadmill of the forces i mean i think we can all agree on this when a lot of that other stuff in life goes by the wayside doesn't it you know i never traveled i never did all those crazy things i never did any drugs never smoked or anything i was straight in and then you know you're well, as soon as you're in a uniform you kind of you're in a bit of a straight jacket i think in terms of how you have to you know your military bearing and how you have to conduct yourself and even on a night out you know Oh my God. Yeah, I've been in London plenty of times in the Army Navy and seen plenty of Marines in dresses. But in general, we all do have a bit of an upstanding in society. You know, we're actually pretty much are the, I think the the, the dapper gentleman at the at Ascot Race Course. You know, I think forces people do have this kind of level up in society where they kind of know how to look after each other, know how to conduct themselves. And you know, and you can't just be that absolute knobhead all the time. Whereas if you're a student or a civvy, you can get away with that because <laughs> you're not answerable to anyone. So you're right. I think maybe do go through your wild oats, have your great fun around the world, do whatever you need to do, smoke your weed, do all that before you join. <laughs> well, I think it also gives you that 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 maturity as well. So what that when you do turn up, um, you know that these people that actually there are, are you know, are your instructors, they're actually people too. They're not like they haven't, yeah. the, you know, there's not this God complex there, or if yeah. they do have this God complex, which you and I know when people get promoted, regardless of whether you're in a, a business environment or whether you're in the military environment, people can change because they've oh, got yeah. this, this element of authority now, but you, you're the able to. Those, I don't know if you agree, but the worst of those ones, because I've met them all the way through my career, but the worst are the ones that you used to know that weren't like that. You know, the ones that used to be really good people and then they become like that. They're the, like the biggest disappointment, isn't it? Like they get get up a few ladders on the rank and the next thing or a different position or role and suddenly they change overnight. They're always they're so sad to see that. You're like, you used to be a good lad and now you're an absolute, yeah, <laughs> morale sponge. I, I used to hate it because I used to have like quite, quite a, a good, you know, set of friends years ago when we were corporals. So, like, you know, taking recruits through training is 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 kind of one of those examples. Really, is that you, you work in a team of um, between four, four and six people, and you know, you work really closely together all the time. And one of these guys, you know, he was a really nice lad. And then about we left the training teams round about the same time, and then probably about five or six years later, I, um, I I met him in the sergeant's mess, and um, I ended up talking to him. And because he was kind of a, a higher rank than I was, he was looking down his nose at me, and I was and yeah. I was like, and every time I saw the way that he, he spoke to people as well was very much like I'm in charge, you're under me. You know, he he was kind of one of those guys. Now, you don't get me wrong. You don't get, you don't get taught how to speak to people when, you know, you you get that element of uh, of authority over people. But um, at the end of the day, there's that human side of it as well. You've, you've got to be on the flip side. Not being a human, 
Are you yeah. know, instantly overnight, I have to become a knob just because you put a different stripe on your shoulder. <laughs> you know, don't forget who you are first. I think that's the most important thing about any rank is that, yes, you wear the rank, but you are the person. And don't forget who you are inside. You know, it's too easy to like think that you've become that rank and you haven't. It's just you just wearing it. I always used to make a joke that when you become a sergeant, you get your spine removed. Yeah. So whenever like, cause, cause I, I, I took a hit with my, with my promotion probably by it for about seven years. Uh, cause I transferred over branches from the anti-tanks branch to the PT branch. So when I transferred over, I, I should have picked up my promotion as a sergeant, but I ditched it and became like the junior corporal again. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the, 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 there was kind of there was a lot of a lot of that, but because I was like more mature and these, I didn't really get spoken to um, yeah. that badly. Hard to do that. Yeah, I think you know. Again, coming back to like my career, I um we pass out of basic training after three months as a sergeant. Like, oh wow! Months, and like I had been in, so basically I joined on day one, attested to serve the Queen on my nineteenth birthday, and then you go into like a three month at Cranwell. It's not at Halton, but, you know, running around with carrying pine poles and building tripods and all these leadership exercises, because what they're training us is to be junior leaders, a bit like you guys go through junior leader, um, whatever it is in Brecon Beacons or whatever. We basically are training our uh, air crew to come out already as sergeants. And that's so that if we've got you guys on the back of the aircraft, we've got a bit of authority to be able to like give you the stage one brief, which is the safety brief of the aircraft. So we have to have a minimum rank of sergeant. But, you know, I was 19 and a quarter years old, 19 and three months, and I'm walking around with sergeant slides on my shoulders. And, you know, I was still saluting the freaking corporal in the main gate because I had so little military bearing and, you know, I so wet behind the ears when I first joined. But um, so it's a big, big ask. And we get nicknamed plastic sergeants in the sergeant's mess at Cranwell because we pop out of basic training when you're all in the block. And then, like, literally, I passed out around Christmas time and you come back after Christmas leave into January. And you're in the, the the sergeant's mess, warrant officer and sergeant's mess, and all these warrant officers who've been in the Air Force for like 25, 30 years. And we're all cutting around like students with sergeants slides on. So I can see where, you know, it does their absolute head in, but it's just the nature of the system. So I think, I don't know if I've ever been able to be at Cromwell as a warrant officer looking back now, because I think to have to bite your tongue so often <laughs> would have been quite hard. Yeah. Uh, that that sort of thing is 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 quite difficult, though, I, c- I can imagine, because I know... Uh, when I was um, I was at the Commando Logistic Regiment up in up in North Devon, and I remember taking some army lads through um, sort of like their pre pre all arms commando training, and then they go away and do that. And two years later, they were they were like a a private or you know a just regular cannon fodder soldier, and then two years later they come back and they're a sergeant. I'm like that. How did that work? Yeah. I I've just like because our promotion is. It's pretty slow. Um, yeah. but... Once you get into it, it's very, very slow. And the RAF have a really poor promotion system. You know, have to have second. You can't just be good at your job in the RAF. You've got to have all these extra secondary duties and whatnot to get promoted. So I won't go down too much of a rabbit hole on it. But you know, we had one particular year where an, a, a, a chap who I'm um, quite sure won't be listening to this, but he um he got grounded and he couldn't fly. So he had all the time in the world to redo the kitchen on the squadron and got promoted out of it because he was doing this great secondary duty. And it's like, well, that's all fine, but the rest of us are working our ass off out in Herrick you know and you just think it's a really poor system but and it just breeds resentment because sometimes the people who get promoted are not the people who are grafting their asses off into the ground um, and the people who are just running at 100 miles an hour on ops they don't have time to come back and be you know 
champion of the charity such and such a thon or helping out with this old granny's group around the corner because they're too busy and then the people get overlooked so it's a really I don't know what the the Marines like. I don't know what the promotion, the way it's done. I think the army's slightly better because in the army, I think you get post, you get promoted slightly better on merit and how you're doing your actual job, which is so it should be, I think. Um, but yeah, the RAF, it's not that. <laughs> well, I think the military itself has very much gone down the business model now, where it's you show you've got to show your extra capacity, so you like work one up, two yeah. up. Um, whereas you know when we or I passed out of training, used to have these little paper documents that you had to CT33s and C2177s to show that you wanted to get promoted. And, you know, you had to go on like a little promotion card um, get that signed off and you became a, you became a Lance Corporal. And that was like, you could only do that once you'd done a couple of years out of the box yeah. um, and things like that. And, that. and then it was very much so merit-based, but then like JPA and, um, you know, the electronic systems came in. Destruction uh, of the forces, JPA. And, yeah. it, and, and, it, and it kind of ruined everything. And, and that time of um, what was, what was good about just getting promoted out of being good at your job at the rank that you were in showing promise. Um, now you had to show that you, were good at doing a corporals, a sergeants, a colour sergeants, yeah. a sergeant major's job, you know, to get promoted. And I'm like, well, why do I want to take that extra burden on? I'm not getting paid for it. Yeah. You know, and when I look back at it now, and that's kind of why I was a little bit like when people used to ask me to do stuff, I was like, no, <laughs> I ain't doing that. And then if you do, if you want promotion, I mean, we used to have the old banter with people who were, oh, you're a lifer, you're a company man, and you're in it for the promotion. And actually, there becomes a stigma around people that want to do well, <laughs> because you don't want to be licked as that company person who just is like, you know, taking all the, all the extra duties. So it's a really fine balance. And I think I think it's pretty flawed the way that they do it. But anyway, yeah, it's good to a massive rabbit hole talking about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, big time. I would like to delve into the uh, the, the the tours that you, we, um, had uh, yeah. had spent some time in because we definitely joined well, up and, and, and were and were part of that. Um, you could almost call and kind of call it the glory days. Yeah, you know those those fourteen fifty time where it was just epic ops all the time. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I know it's a very broad question, but you know, how did you find that that whole experience? Because you know, before 2000 or before the Twin Towers went down, you know, there's very kind of little going on. There's Kosovo and um, and a few things like that, Sierra Leone, but there wasn't really much going on. And then all of a sudden no. it just exploded. And then, you and know. And I can't remember, we were chatting last time about, I mean, I joined a week after the 9-11, a week after the Twin Towers. And uh, the woman beside me, when I was watching that on TV, said, you're going to be busy. And I was like, never a truer word was said, looking back. But um, in terms of, you know, how did I feel about it? I you know, I joined the RAF to do a job, I joined the military to do a job. And I think I'm really lucky with that slice of time I had. I compare it to some of my mates now and even some of the guys who were joined, joining at the tail end of Herrick, who now, you know, then they had Mali, which was a little bit boring and then now they're doing, doing nothing. I had an amazing slice of time to be in the forces. And, but I also had joined, I think at just a good enough time that when I went to, on my first Iraq, which was 2003, the war fighting had finished. So I was still going through my heli basic helicopter training. And I actually watched the Baghdad invasion on the TV in okay. my room at Shawbury. I couldn't wait to get amongst it. And then when I got, went to Iraq in 2003 and 04, 
the war finally finished so all we were doing was like routine tasking and we were going in and out of like Badger Palace and Chateau Arab Hotel and Shibitha but a lot of the place and Alamara was, was where we held the IRT from but in terms of getting shot at and threat there was just no appetite to lose the Chinook so it was really quite benign then now I know that Iraq then went on when we pulled out in 05, 04, 05, it got really kinetic for a while again, didn't it? And it was actually getting smashed to pieces, which made very few headlines because at the time, overlapping, Herrick had started and Herrick was getting all the headlines and actually Iraq was, well, Basra was getting flat packed on a regular basis, but I never saw that element. So my normality bar was slowly kind of rising in terms of like a little bit of a threat, getting shot at a little tiny bit. And then whenever, even in the early days of Helmand, there wasn't that many troops in the ground. You you guys were up at the top of Kajaki. There were Bastion was being built. You know, we helped as the Chinook force, we helped build Bastion out of the ground. You know, it was just a desert bowl with a barbed wire fence on the first couple of my debts, and we were all at Kandahar. Um, you know, Lashkagar was there and, and Goreshk and Sangin, and that was it. And then as the years went on, all those Ford operating bases get pepper potted up and down the Helmand Valley. And that's when things started like the connect it got more kinetic. The, the stuff we'd say on Merck got more tra- traumatic. And the bullets would be more regular and IEDs and rockets and all sorts of stuff. So, but it happened really gradually for me. And therefore, I mean, I look back now and it's one of the things I talk about a lot in the book and also in my talks I do about that normalizing trauma. I had the luxury and it, it's a weird thing to say, but I did have the luxury of like easing into the danger where some of the crewmen who maybe joined the wing halfway through Herrick had been, you know, at university or coming out of school doing A-levels the same as I did. And maybe as quick as a year, maybe 18 months of training, and they were on Herrick, maybe on their first day, picking up torsos and bits of bodies and the stuff that really was the, you know, the most kinetic moments of of Mert, those guys were straight in. And that's a, that's hard. They didn't have that chance to like get used to that. They were straight in, you know, fresh out of the, out of the school, Chinook school, and then suddenly picking up bits of bodies. And, you know, near misses with RPGs and rockets. And I think the Chinook force as a whole normalized that trauma and that danger. You know, we used to laugh all the time when you have like an RPG take off one of like a bit of the blades and you limp back to Camp Bastia. But I oh, made it again. That was close. Hopefully not quite so close tomorrow. And you go out for more the next day. And, you know, I watched videos of you guys. You all did the same as well. We were all guilty of it. You know, you, you kind of, yes, the adrenaline spikes in the body when you have an ear miss, but first response most of us do is laugh and go bloody hell that was close and it you know you guys got absolutely battered out in Herrick and and you know you did Jericho before as well didn't you uh and yeah, I mean that was I think when we were talking before you said it was more like a mountaineering expedition Jericho than actually getting shot at yeah Jacana was awesome Jacana um, sorry not Jericho yeah Jacana yeah, um but you know we all normalized I think you could probably sit here and say the same thing you kind of started to laugh at those near misses there was actually points because uh, I was in um, on Herrick Five. I was on I was in Goresh, yeah, and the uh, Fob Price just on the yeah you know, a couple of miles outside of the Goresh, and um, it became a normal thing. Like you know, we were constantly getting mortared, and um, it just became a normal thing where you know I'd got so desensitized to it. I remember um, just going for a coffee one evening, and the the. Uh, the, the mortar alarms were going off and everyone was grabbing their helmets and their body armor. Well, I call it body armor, that CBA. You could drop on the cardigans. Yeah, yeah, they call uh, cardigans. Yeah. And 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 it and it wouldn't stop anything. And it had like a little bad that, language, would it? <laughs> yeah. Then you got a little CBA plate that was just went over your heart because yeah. the rest of your body doesn't matter. It's absolutely fine. So don't worry about that. So 
So I got a little bit desensitized to it. And um, I remember just going for a coffee and everyone was running into the, into the, uh, into the like mortar showers. And I was just sat there like that. All right. It's nowhere near us. I can hear it landing outside the walls. I would only go in there if it was like, you know, you could hear it creeping in and, and it, and it never rarely did. No, and we used to go to the fobs routinely and, you know, we'd land on, put the ramp down, the guys would run out or come out in the quad bike to offload the aircraft or bring whatever, had to go back on. And they'd be like in shorts and they'd cut off their combat, so they'd be in their shorts and their flip-flops and like their combat cardigans slung on. I mean, this is in the early, early days, but yeah, it was, and, and the irony was it was still, even in the early days, some of the fobs like singing certainly and Kajaki was not a nice place to be, but um, it was just this really like, I look back and I think probably a lot of people may be watching this and a lot of your mates will say those are the heydays because, you know, war is war is not fun, is it? And it's not um, it's not pretty. But when you're left to get on with it, when you're left alone, almost to go feral and just to get on with the fighting and the staying alive bit, that's probably the bit people enjoyed the most. Whereas towards the end of Herrick, there was so many rules and regs came in, you know, certainly at Camp Bastion. The hat police arrived and it was like, you know, you've got to wear your seatbelt. You know, we would routinely get told off in the Mert wagon because we only had a, a Mert Landover. And then, you know, there'd be senior officers driving around in their Hilux trucks towards the last few Herricks I did with their aircom trucks on and this and the other. And we'd have this shitty old Landover that had no windscreen because we'd pebble dash the windscreen and it cracked it. So it had to have the windscreen removed. The doors, we used to make an approach over the top of it to the landing site and the doors would open on the hinges and then they just warped the hinges. So we took the doors off as well. So it basically looked like Annika Rice's truck in green. So we would cut around Camp Bastion in this. Now, bearing in mind, we'd fly over the fence every day and we'd go into, RPGs, rockets, bullets. We'd come back and, you know, the whatever it was, regimental sergeant major at the time used to go stop us and tell us to put our seatbelts on, driving around Camp Aston. You're like, for real? Like, honestly? And so we saw both sides. And I think we were quite, you know, it's quite hard to see that because we saw what real war was like. And then we'd come back to the hat police telling us to wear day glow belts and all that crap. Whereas at least I think if you were in Bastion, that was how Bastion was then. So if you were in there just doing a, a never over the wire, job at Bastion that was just how you lived your life at war whereas for us we saw then the guys in the fobs who were getting absolutely smashed and coming back to this bullshit rules at Bastion and it was even harder for them when we'd bring them back to then go on R&R &R or to have a couple of days kicking around at Bastion some of those guys we'd I'd always stop them going off the ramp and be like make sure you hide for a few hours before you have to shave your beard off because you know the guys would come back looking really feral and as soon as the SWO um got hold of them yeah it'd be a different different ball game so I think they were given 12 hours grace or something before they had to smarten themselves up. But it's like, that's war. You know, that's that's what everybody else is doing out there over the fence. The thing is that, you know, you listen to people and uh, and, and stories from you know, back in the day, like Second World War and Aiden and, um, you know, career and, and things like that. And you watch some of the old um, the the old TV shows like that. Uh, Ain't that Ain't Half Hot Mom, I think it was called. Yeah. It's all very. It was all the same, you know. The 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 discipline and you know, the sergeant majors, the regiment sergeant majors, and and some of the officers. It was it was all very much. You go out there, you do the job, you come back, and then you know what? You need to be washed. You need to be shaved. You need to be serviceable. You need to get this. You need to do that. You need to apply by these rules. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of part and parcel of um of kind of the military, really. But I think, um it is a difficult thing to kind of come back from. So you go out, you go out of the door, you're scrapping, 
some of your mates have got shot, don't know, they might have done, someone might have got injured, they might not have. You come back, you have a wash, you get changed, and then, you know, you shaved and you go into the galley or to the cookhouse to, to with everybody else. And yeah, it, it is kind of a little bit surreal because as soon as you step through those walls, you are no longer in the flag of Afghanistan. You're in the flag of the United Kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, seeing both sides, that was really hard for us. Worse for you guys. But um, I, you know, there is definitely, there was two wars in Helmand. You know, there, there really was. There was two war zones to go to. There was one over the fence and the one in the fence. <laughs> and, um, but I think, um, yeah, I think you learn a lot, don't you? You know, I think you learn a lot about the simple things in life whenever you're certainly out in the fobs. Um, I was chatting to someone about this yesterday about how, I, I mean, I've had more austere conditions and souls to be playing on exercises than I ever did out in Camp Bastion. You know, we did come back every night. We had a hot shower and we had a bed to go to, which was nothing compared to the guys in the fobs. And yes, some, were, some fobs were even worse than others. But, you know, you'd be lucky if you got a shower every three weeks in some of them. But, it make, you know, it makes you appreciate the really simple things in life, doesn't it? like a letter from home or a fresh orange. I remember putting the ramp down one day and giving out a box of oranges to some of the guys who are one of the fobs and they've been on rat packs for like five, six, maybe longer weeks at this point and just having a box of fresh oranges. They were like, they looked at me like I was Santa and it was like really nice to be able to do that. But even giving a bag of meal to the guys and just saying, you know, here's some letters from home. That's why I love the most about Chinooks is that our, my job made a difference. You know, my job absolutely made a difference to people on a day-to-day basis and, whether or not it was taking letters and, and fresh food in or ammunition and water or whether or not it was rescuing their mates and, and saving lives. You know, I felt like every morning I made a difference and that was really important to me. I love the sound of the Chinook. It was always, um, it always made you feel like whole inside when you heard it. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> if, even even if it wasn't coming to you, you know, I, I remember sitting there one day and like, I remember we'd gone for about 12 weeks, I think, being on uh, menu B, Um, you know, just the same thing over and over again. And uh, every time the Chinook come over, because you can hear it, you can hear those blades from from a mile away. Like even now, I live a mile and a half away from the the commander training center. You know, it's just down the road from me, but I can hear the Merlins come in. You know, uh, yesterday I was just sat in the field waiting to pick my little boy up from school, and you can, ch- I can hear one now. Yeah, it's just coming over the top. You can you can tell what what type of aircraft it is coming over, and I just remember sitting there, you know, outside the tent, and you're like, "Is it coming here? Is it not? You know, has the uh, has the TQ told anybody that there's a you know there's an airdrop coming in today? Because sometimes yeah. you guys couldn't fly in." Yeah, that was the majority. That was probably one of the main reasons why you couldn't get um, any food or fresh rations in or anything is because the area that we were in was like so hot that every time aircraft came in low, there was RPGs and small arms fire. And, you know, we've only got so many Chinooks. Yeah, so and there was no appetite to lose one because I mean, mentally and like psyops, if you think psychology, like psychology wise, that they, if the Taliban had taken out a Chinook, a British Chinook in that theatre. I mean, that would have been monumentally disastrous for the whole British forces, just in hearts and minds, you know, a, w- a massive win for them. And how much would that have hurt us really in where, like right in the heart? Because, you know, the Chinook was the heartbeat of that campaign. So to take one of those things out, especially with a bunch of troops down the back, you know, 40 troops down the back and one of those goes down. So we were, 
not allowed to go into a lot of places if there was a threat. But that said, when Mert was on, you know, for Mert, for Cal, for T1, we would go in, you know, and sometimes we were held off by the theatre commander until the Apaches soaked the area or they'd gone and cleared the area. But there's not a single Chinook crew in this entire world that ever would have not gone in somewhere for someone. You know, if we got held off, we were literally edging in as close as we could until we got the green light on the radio and we'd go in. Um, you know, that's kind of the, the nature. Of, it was just the most important job that we, all of us will still say that we did, you know, for a nine liner. And it was the most frustrating moments where they said, no, it's too dangerous, you can't go in because every single one of us would have taken the danger anytime. You know, it's it, it's worth it to save a life. And it always, you know, the tunic is a beast and it can take a lot of battle damage. I've had lots of near misses with RPGs and mortars and taken lots of rounds to the airframe before going in above my head and a triple A round that got caught in the ballistic protection panel that I was stood on at the time which is pretty lucky but you know we were kind of used to it and that's what our job was you know to go and get the guys and a, a lot of the stuff I've heard since leaving is that you guys felt safer knowing like you said that we were just out there waiting to come and get you if something should happen so yeah and there was yeah. the odd dust storm as well. There was a dust storm out there. I don't know if you ever lived through one of the dust storms out in Herrick, but my God, it was like a, it was like something out of the Mummy movie when this dust storm came in. So that grinded everything. And it was just, I remember it, just thinking, please don't let there be anybody on a CAE or T1 on the Mert whenever we've got this dust in, because there's no way we could have gone anywhere then. So, yeah. One of the most significant things I take away from Afghanistan and Iraq is it's probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to in my life. And, um, you know, you guys get to see it from the air. You get to see the scenery a little bit more. And, um, you know, from the ground perspective, uh, Herrick, uh, pretty much all of the Afghanistan tours I did because I was in heavy weapons at the time were all, were all vehicle-based. So, yeah. you know, I went, I went from having a, an open-topped Land Rover Wimmick that had no doors, windscreen, ballistic matting. We did have it in the end. You had to tape it to it, which was a bit <laughs> rubbish and wouldn't really do anything, but we did it anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, all the way up to the up to the jackals and the and the mastiffs at, at, yeah. at the very end, which were like, you know, life-saving bits of kit. You know, I got blown up in a Mastiff. You know, it's, it's kind of a claim to fame. I got blown up twenty-three times, and twenty-two times of those was in um was in a was in a Mastiff, and you know, it all that happened was the wheels got blown off. You know, it's but like it, old... going back to what I said earlier about normalizing trauma and danger, like you do, like it's mad as if you go, oh, I've been blown up twenty-three times. Like, how many people can sit and say that? Not that many. <laughs> and yet, here we, you know, here you are chatting, and I'm sure most of your mates probably have equally similar stories. And I think that's where the public don't really get us veterans as as much because we just, you know, it's we've got this dark sense of humor about it, don't we? Because we've all normalized it so much. I feel like now, you know, I'm what nearly two years, to two years the other side of the door now, and. Um, I don't know. If it, it's it's a little bit strange, I feel like I feel like I'm that Second World War guy that's you know he's come back home and doesn't really expect anything from anyone. You know the things that you've done, the things that you've seen. You you know you've you've seen a thousand lifetimes already, um, yeah. and you're just continuing on the the path that you're going. This is quite deep. You need a stick. <laughs> You need a cloak and a stick at this point, Ads. <laughs> well, I, I've kind of nearly got the Gandalf beard yeah, going on big. anyway. So, but yeah, when when you come to the other side of it, it it feels a bit 
it's a bit strange because you kind of look back on it and you go, look, I, I did this. And, you know, one of the reasons why you've written a book is because you've got that, you've got all of your stories, your memories, your feelings, and the things that have happened to you before and after enduring are all down on, you know, a bit of paper now that you can say, look, this was, this was my life. This is what I yeah. did. And then similarly, we've had a conversation before about, you know, I'm trying to slowly write a book about all the things that I've done, military surfing, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. So I've got something, you know, that's there for, you know, hopefully, you know, lifetimes to come yeah. where the people pick it up in 10, 20, 30, 40 years time and go, do you know what? That's actually a pretty decent story. Yeah. But, but I might have you. I mean, I think... Um... My biggest fear when I, because I wrote the book and it was just written for me, it was dead in my laptop, it never ever was intended to get published and, and for anyone to read it. And then it was only a mate who encouraged me to send it off. And I was telling you this before, I managed to get published and then it was like, whatever's happened since then has happened. So I never wrote it with any, the intention of anyone reading it. But I am, and I remember when it came out, my biggest fear was what, like, I'm not special. You know, I have a million crewmen mates who all did exactly the same as me, all went to the same war, all saw the same shit and also picked up dead bodies. And I thought, well, why am I so special? And what if they all think, oh, why is she so special that she thinks she's got the credibility to write a book about this? Because there is always someone who's done more than you, always someone who's seen more than you and been in longer and been to more war zones and got more medals on their chest. And I thought, oh, am I going to get massively criticized? And actually the Chinook force were really supportive because they were like, it's good that someone's cataloging what we did in Herrick. And it's also good that someone now knows what a crewman does down the back of a Chinook because lots of people thought you just get two pilots up there. And a lot of other people thought, well, we're just door gunners like the army have. And we do a bit more than that, it turns out. So it was kind of just good to put the crewman branch on the map a little bit but like you say if you write your book ads do it for you because i'm you know i don't care what anyone thinks now the book obviously it's really lovely people enjoy it and i'm obviously really relieved about that but you know if someone asked me what's your favorite book i would still say mine i love rereading it and and because it's you know i think it's a, a love letter back to the chinook and about my career so do it for you and that's the best advice i'd ever give anyone to writing a book is don't do it for the reader because you'll end up feeling false do it for you and do it from the heart and then it'll always always be successful because people love people people love humans so be human and one of the unique things about all this is that you've actually gone and done it as well which is you know uh you you stepped outside the box and and that can be that can be quite scary for people you know yeah. and being on the again you know going back to talking about being outside of the military and and, and stuff now it's um it's dare to doing dare to doing something different dare yeah. to not you know being in the same kind of rat race that people put this kind of they put themselves in a box um you know the way that i kind of think of it um again I, you know i'm probably going to start talking about myself again because i tend to do that a little bit um but i think what i've done when i've left i've set up you know i set up two of my own businesses um setting up another one now you know, they're not massive. It's just me. I'm doing everything, you know, but I'm doing stuff that I enjoy doing and I'm okay. getting, I'm getting paid to paid to do the stuff that I enjoy doing as well. So I don't come home every day or I'm working a nine to five job in a job that I didn't really, really want, but I did it because the, the pay packet was there. It, it equated to what I was getting paid in the military yeah. Uh, you know, and I come back and I'm I'm living for the weekend again, which you know that's that's not living. That, yeah. Then whenever I came out of the military in 2019, 
because I was medically discharged, so I came out ahead of what I expected to be. And like, it'd been all I'd ever wanted to do since I was 19. And suddenly that uniform's not on you anymore. And it's a hard stop at the end because, you know, you're you're in that club for 17 and a half years. And suddenly on the Monday, I want to go and see my mate for a brew and I can't because I've got to get a car pass. I've got to get escorted. I've got to go and they'll escort me back off camp. And it's such a hard club to be kicked. It's not like a, a corporate business where you're just out of the club and you can pop back in for a cup of the next week. It's a real hard stop at the end. Um. But that first year, I went back to work at the simulator, and now a massive Chinook simulator Odium, and it's all singing, all dancing, virtual reality. It's even got a minigun in there. It's amazing. And I got offered a job there with really good money, and I was like, oh, it's too good to turn down, and all oh, my mates are going to be there, and it's just going to be like being in the RAF. And I was clinging to RAF Odium, like this, like literally with my fingernails, because I didn't want to just let go. And I was so scared of letting go. And it was the worst job of my life. I was about 30 years too young to be doing that job. Even though some of my mates were the other instructors, they were all at the end of their career. I was still very young. And, you know, I every day I'd just do it for the money and I couldn't wait for the weekend. And it is the uh, one of the biggest learning points of my entire life is that there is so much more to life than money. I ended up going from that job to work for a, a disabled flying charity who fly veterans who've got injuries. And it was the most, probably the worst paid job I've ever been on, but my God, the most rewarding, you know, we call it the dream factory. So I think you've really got to, certainly if you're coming out of the forces and you've got a pension, which most of us will have some form or degree, you know, think about what makes you want to be proud to be you and, you know, be able to look in the mirror and be really um, proud of what you do. So not just about who you are, but what you're doing. And if you can find that passion and purpose again, then you'll be okay. I think it's when you sell your soul to Satan that people start to unravel because then you're really lacking in that purpose. And we, none of us joined on day one because we did it for the money or the lifestyle and the forces. We all did it because we've got the seed inside us. that makes us want to serve and make a difference in life. And that, that doesn't go away. That's still inside you, even when you take the uniform off 20, 30 years later. So you need to find something that gives you that purpose again. And I think what the stuff you do is clearly the stuff you're passionate about. It comes from the heart, doesn't it? And I think that's me with the book now, talking about mental health. It's the thing that lights me up inside. And I'd say for any veteran, you know, follow that passion, make it happen. Because, you know, otherwise you will just be, you'll unravel very quickly, I think, otherwise. So this this conversation direction links up really nicely with kind of the, the mental health um, side of things as well, because I think that if you don't do things that you don't enjoy doing or, you know, you haven't really got a passion behind it, um, and especially when you leave the military as well, um, it doesn't give you an anchor to do to to but with like your mental health space. You know, for me, you know, before even leaving the military, you know, the reason for this podcast is you know, talking about surfing and and grappling and, and military stories, but surfing and 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 jujitsu are, are two of my anchors for my mental health. If I didn't have those, then I one, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing now, teaching jujitsu for a living. And, you know, surfing is one of one of my all-time passions I've been doing since I was 14 years old. So all my things that that are that my headspace keeps me grounded with that otherwise the things that i've seen and done and um you know the experiences that i've been there i think would have probably dragged me down a um you know a dark path way well before where i am now you know probably about yeah. 10 10 years ago so kind of leading on to when you're leaving the military and probably the reason why a lot of veterans go down and um, that little dark road in their head and they don't feel like they know where to go is because they don't have that mental anchor 
I use that quite a lot. It's, yeah. I, I, I like it as a nice cliche word to use because you're grabbing onto something that's holding you in place. Um, and, and and without that, I think pe- when people don't have a purpose, a, a, a personal purpose, then that's probably one of, I'm not saying the, one of the reasons why people do you know, have yeah. that. I mean, you, you would know better than me because you've been down that path already. Um, oh no I love that term mental anchor it's really good I've not heard that before because you know my coping mechanism was running and coping mechanism that's a different thing to a mental anchor like you say coping mechanism was I was burying my head in the sand by just running and running and that's how I would take how to empty my bucket you know the more trauma I saw in Herrick the more I'd run and then in lockdown the running stopped so my coping mechanism is gone but the main thing that was gone and like you said, is that mental anchor? And for me, the mental anchor has always been about that making a difference and helping people, you know, so it's less of a physical activity. It's more of a feeling that I need to be making a difference to someone's life that day. And I obviously had that in bucket loads in, in the Chinook Force and more importantly in, in Herrick. And suddenly in lockdown, um, you know, it didn't really matter if I got up in the morning anymore. And I, I actually kept hunting for that purpose. So I ended up volunteering for a like a visor shield printing thing and did loads of stuff with them for a couple of weeks until that all got shut down by the government because they were like, no, it's got to be approved PPE. So that all got closed down and I, have, I, vol- I applied to volunteer with React, which is now, well, it was not React at the time. It was run by an ex-Marine guy, Richard Sharp, I think. Um, okay, uh, yeah. So- yeah, so I volunteered to work with them, volunteered to work for the NHS and do one of the like d- drug delivery people. And I just was searching and applying for anything to get me that purpose. And and I couldn't find it. And it ended up me that year when I unraveled and then I developed the insomnia because I had no routine, because I had no purpose, no reason to get out of bed. And it just manifested in a big cycle of no sleep, no exercise, eating really shit food get went around that circle and that's when in the August the overdose happened and I think you know I look back now and I think if I'd have been part of something during lockdown that had made me need to get up out of bed in the morning I probably wouldn't have got down to the point I got to and I think that's like that from for me that was my mental anchor and I've got it back again now and even the last you know the two years coming out the other side of the overdose and having all my mental health counseling I was still just, I was working for a drone company. The book was kind of all bubbling around in the background with the editors, but I still didn't have, and I was still in a really bad place. Like I was still, you know, good days, bad days, mostly bad days. I quit it to surfing all the time. I was falling off the board every day and really drowning and get managing to get on the board for like 30 seconds and getting knocked back off again. And, um, and there was only when the book hit the streets and that was just over a year ago. I feel like it's been an upward trend. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and lie. I still have some days where I'm just like, back in the hole again but I used to look for reasons why I used to go you know what have I watched on tv who have I spoken to what have I read what has triggered me and we all love those words of triggered what's triggered me and actually the truth is sometimes just a bigger wave you know this from surfing sometimes it's just a big freaking wave knocks you over for the day don't try to figure out why the wave was bigger where the wave came from just let it knock you off have a day regrouping and then get back on the surfboard and I'm so much better at doing that now but um you know, since the book came out, I've definitely got more purpose in life, 100%. And that's just an inspiration to other people that, you know, if they think about doing something, it's just go and do it and, and don't be scared of doing it either, putting yourself on that on that pedestal and, um, you know, putting yourself out there, which is a, a really scary thing. And I think if more people did it, you know, that, uh, maybe, I don't know, skepticism maybe. Um, I think... I think a lot of veterans suffer from imposter syndrome. I mean, I still do. 
And, you know, I stand now in front of rooms of like 800 people and give my talk. And before I go up on stage, I'm always going, why the hell would anyone want to listen to me? And nine times out of 10, I end up with a standing ovation. And the first time I went to a book thing at Yeovil, the book had only been out about a week or two. And it was a book event in, in um, Waterstones in Yeovil in a big theatre. And in the green room, when I say the green room, is a crappy little tea room around the back. But Sheila Hancock was there, who's like a huge despian actor from the UK. And she was chatting away to me and she said, oh, my dear, are you an author? And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not an author. I said, I'm a Chinook crewman. And she went, oh, well, wh why are you here? And I said, well, I wrote a book. And she went, so you're an author then? And I was like, uh, I guess I am. And I still haven't really got my head around it. And I still don't. And I think most veterans come out into the civvy world and kind of, they just really doubt their ability. And they have got so much to bring to the party. You know, I guarantee their CV will look like it's been written by a five-year-old, but they will bring more to any company than anyone else in that company. But they just don't know it. You know, timekeeping, you know, that military bearing, just being able to command and lead and support as well. You know, the, both elements are really important in any business, but we are so bad at having that imposter syndrome. And, you know, I talk about it a lot in my talks and loads of people really really resonate with that because they think the same really really suffer i think that Wednesday. where do you see yourself in in five years time so you know with that in mind the yeah the the tide of this the book coming out you know you're a year into it um you probably already thought about this already the, the, <laughs> I would love to be able to forecast ahead, but I never thought in a million years on Monday I'd be going and standing with like Lorraine Kelly off the TV at the Woman of the Year Awards. I never thought that was going to happen and that's happened. And I'm kind of just living every week and surprising myself that this actually is my life. So I think where I'd love to be in five years in answer to the question is that um, on a red carpet at a movie premiere with Tom Cruise having made a movie. <laughs> The book. I mean, that's the goal, right? Get Tom Cruise to read the book, make a story about the book. It'd be like Saving Private Benjamin meets, you know, Black Hawk Down. So a mix of those kind of things because uh, I was so freaking naive as a kid in the forces and then, you know, went on to Million War Zone. So I think it'd be like a great film. So someone needs to get it to Tom Cruise and under his nose. But, you know, that he is. Might, he might send you a uh, Scientology book back to you and you get involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> Someone did suggest that it could be called Top Gunner. And I was like, that is far too cheesy. No, not Top Gunner. But I think, you know, there hasn't been a movie made about, you know, I don't know, there's been plenty of movies made about females in the forces. But, you know, there's loads of sexy fast jet movies. Why not make a helicopter one? Um, but it would need to be a big budget because there's not there's got to be lots of helicopter footage in it and lots of chinook footage. But, um, you know, that's, you know, I, I'm joking half really with that dream. But I just kind of want to keep helping people, you know, for every single day goes by. I get more and more messages about people who it's helped, you know, from talks that they've been at with me. Um, even I did a podcast come out last night with Big Phil Campion and um, someone watched it last night and I woke up this morning and messaged them that he and his mates have been really worried about a particular guy for a, a while now and seven of them are going to see him this weekend because of watching my podcast last night because they've identified some of the behaviours and him that I was talking about in my story and how I unraveled that year you know my my behaviors changed 180 the girl who ran marathons like I'd run 16 20 miles every day to like not getting dressed you know my behaviors changed so much that anyone who was if if we hadn't been in lockdown people would have picked up and all of my mates from the raft would have picked up and up and no one did because I was hit in lockdown so um the fact that my podcast last night has helped those guys to identify that in that chap and hopefully he'll go and get help makes a difference so I just want to keep growing that mental health message and 
you know, I've always wanted this. I've always had this thing to just keep trying to help soldiers. And it's why I joined the Genetic Force. And I think, you know, if I can keep being a bit of a champion for mental health with veterans, then, yeah, I would just want to do that. Well, you've certainly got the gift of the gab for it anyway. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know. I, the audiobook comes out in, so the paperback comes out in about two, three weeks, end of end of October. And the audiobook is coming out shortly after that, hopefully in time for Christmas, which makes me laugh because I have read my audiobook, which means that most people are going to need subtitles to listen to it anyway. So you might as well just buy the book. It's my, my advice. Did you put some voices on it when you're talking, when you did in the speech? I haven't got I haven't got the skill level or the talent <laughs> to do that. But you know, there's some quite emotional parts in my book, and it did. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I thought it'd be really easy to read my own words, and it wasn't. It was extremely difficult to read it, and um, and certainly some of the more emotional chapters, like sort of three quarters of the way through, I lost a very good friend to cancer, who was another crew girl, and there was only ever six of us in the heyday, so we were all really really close. And you know, her and I had been to Helmand many a time, and then she got taken by cancer, and just trying to get over those that that chapter was really quite difficult but uh, I hope people enjoy it I hope people understand it more importantly um but yeah it's um it's been quite quite some journey <laughs> yeah I mean like you say the the platform that you're that you're sitting on uh, is is a, is an awesome platform to, to you know push that awareness out and like you say if if, if you can if you can be vocal about it and people are going to listen to you and like I say you know you you you're probably being a bit humble when I say to you that you've got the gift of the gab about it, but you know, you, you want to, you, you, you're an engaging person. People want to listen to you. You've got that kind of voice. You don't stutter and fart like I do sometimes. And I'm looking like out the window because I can't remember these big words to try and make myself sound clever, clever than I actually am. Um, you know, and, and, and it's really engaging. Well, I am. Um, I think I also can use. I mean, take away my voice out of this. I've now been connected with so many people in the last maybe seven or eight months of just veterans networks that I can now start to pair people up and kind of go. This would really help you. You know, I, I had a really good call with a mental health uh, mountains for minds. They're called, and they're a charity that do loads of walks and they do loads of coordinated walks all around the UK. They're quite small. They're only starting out, but they want to help veterans, forces people who are still serving. Uh, blue light services and you know um the uh, fire service and stuff as well so i was able i've had done so many talks with those people that i was now able to connect a few people up and go right you, you probably haven't heard of these guys but they really want to help you and these guys want to help you and you know i think that's that's quite nice you know especially a lot of stuff with the met police because they're going through the mill at the minute so i i like to be able, it's nice to be able to be that facilitator to kind of just be a focal point to then send other people out in the right directions it's been quite good have you kind of affiliated yourself with with any charities or anything like that at the moment, or are you just kind of doing the things that you're that you're doing now and um, just kind of like you're saying, pushing people in the direction of of different charities? Not anything really massively specific. I'm just trying to champion. I like to champion the smaller ones, but also the ones that I do think are making a genuine difference. I mean you know combat stress has been really good with me and help for heroes but in a way they actually don't need any help you know they're doing okay themselves and they've got plenty of other people shouting for them i think you know a lot of these underdog charities who are really small really niche um whenever the audiobook comes out i'm donating the profits of that to uh one of the paris charities actually because i met one of the the dads who'd lost his sunlight in in helmand and um and it really it hit me quite hard and just chatting to him having literally spoken to his son spoken to him about his son and then he gave me um a book that was the diary of his son's best friend and i, I read it in a matter of hours and um 
Yeah. So I felt like, you know, to be able to give something back is quite important to that. But again, you know, I'm, I just like to be able to support all those people who are trying to make a difference. Do you follow much on, um, like with the news with what's going on, like in the Ukraine and, and Gaza, or do you kind of, um, desensitize yourself to that because of kind of the impact it has to you do you kind of just turn it off and not not in a, not in a nasty way that you no, don't no. That you're disinterested but you know you okay. just don't want to hear about it anymore the ukraine war hit me really hard i remember waking up and that had happened overnight and didn't leave the house for about three days i was like glued to it i killed tv and i just remember thinking oh it's, it's going to be overwhelmed you know it's, i want to sign up again i want to go i remember emailing someone saying look if you need helicopters operated i'm i can still operate and just wanting to pick up a weapon and go type thing and it's not like I'm a war junkie I just felt like I needed to do something and and then I realized it was actually really detrimental to my mental health because it was sucking me in so this time around with the Gaza thing I watched some videos that did the round on my Twitter feed on Saturday morning of some woman which I'm sure anyone listening to this will have seen in the back of a pickup truck and it hit me really hard because, you know, I've done my escape and evasion training. I know that I, I'm under no illusion if I had been captured by the Taliban, that would have been me. And I think it just hit me. It was just uh, just like just really in terms of just seeing it in my eyeballs, knew it was having a really detrimental effect on my mental health. So I've tried not to watch a single thing this week about it. I mean, you can't really avoid it, a lot of the stuff, but it just gets, it just can suck you in. And especially on Twitter, there's a lot of people arguing about you know, even what the BBC are calling a terrorist and you're like, just, it's just all consuming. So I'm trying to stay away from it. And up pitting, there was an up pitting docu documentary about the evacuation of Kabul about two months ago. And Afghan is this weird thing for me. It's like the greatest point of my life. And it's, a, you know, I left part of my heart and soul in Helmand. There's no two ways about it, but it's also the one thing that can unhinge me so quickly. And I watched that documentary knowing that I really, really did want to see, did want to watch it, did want to hear the story. But I went into a mental hole for about four days afterwards. Um, and I've got a book, Escape from Kabul, um, waiting to be read, but I haven't had the courage to open it yet. And I'm just worried it's going to be a Pandora's box. So I think maybe just leave it for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't watch anything. Yeah, I literally can't. I um, it's not because I'm disinterested, and you know, I kind of got told off by my wife a few um a few months back because she's like, "Do you, did you not see this on the news?" And I'm like, "I don't really want to. I don't want to see all the negative like stuff. I'm not really up to date with current affairs or politics or anything like that because it's just a bunch of idiots." arguing yeah. over stuff that's just fucking everybody's lives up because they can't they can't they can't agree on like finances and stuff like that look i'm I, i'm speaking like i don't have a clue what's going on because because i don't um, yeah. and and the gaza and the ukraine stuff i mean i know plenty of people that have gone out there to help i know one guy that's making documentaries and and has done um you know gone into war zones and stuff over the last three to five years and made films about it and and all that sort of stuff and um I, I I've watched some of them, but I can't bring bring myself to to watch it because I think humans are horrible, horrible race. Worse than the best in society, isn't it? I think you know when you look at a war, it does bring out the best in people, but it equally brings out the worst. Like like for instance, I I I know the video that you were talking about uh, about that about that girl who was part of the who went to the festival on the edge of Gaza, yeah. and uh, and I'm just thinking like all these people that are doing these terrible things and you know you, you can 
put loads of comments and stuff into Instagram and send them to me. I don't really give a shit, but you know, all these people are doing these horrible things in the name of religion. What's religion? Well, in my oh, opinion, yeah, in my I opinion, mean, it's, it's, it's a story. Yes. It's a, it's a belief. People believe in it and that sort of thing. And yeah, that's brilliant. That that's, that's their thing, right? I'm not going to force my beliefs onto other people, but you know, this is a rabbit hole that's going to get opened up potentially. I don't know, but <laughs> No, I'm just saying, you know, I, the Gaza thing is a religion fighting over a piece of land. Now, where in the hell did I grow up? You know, I've seen that tear my country apart. Religion, you know, people say religion's all about love. Oh, no, it's not. Religion tears countries apart. I've lived and breathed it, you know, my growing up in Northern Ireland, seeing it tear communities apart and relationships apart and literally lives apart. So the Gaza thing is literally, it's not quite a cut and paste and obviously I'll get slaughtered for saying that, but it is, you know, it's still a religious war over a piece of turf. And that's exactly what Northern Ireland is still. And, you know, it's, it blows up like it has done. It's going to hit the news and it's going to be a big story, but it's been bubbling around for, you know, I was chatting to my dad about it the other day for like 40 years. Yeah. And it's been bubbling around for thousands of years, really, if we're being honest. But Northern Ireland's the same. Yes, we signed a peace agreement back in 1996, but and Northern Ireland, don't get me wrong, if anyone's listening to this and wants to go to Belfast, it is a banging night out. I'm going into about two weeks' time. But it, there are still little pockets of, you know, that stuff happening. And it's just, But it's no worse than London. You know, you go to London and you see the gang wars in Birmingham, I'm sure the same, same as my, every single big town or city. And even in fact, it doesn't have to be a big town and city. I'd say every little pocket of community has got an undertone somewhere. It's just how it's packaged up and branded, I guess. So yes, Northern Ireland still has its moments, but in, in Toto, it, it's pretty good. But yeah, the whole religion thing, I just can't get involved with it. I can't because I've just seen it. It's so destructive. It You know, we have enough religion to fight, but we don't have enough religion to love each other. It's pretty sad, really. I mean, that's the thing with kind of social media and stuff is that because everyone's got a phone these days and and all that sort of stuff is is really yeah, accessible. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, on, on, on my uh, podcast um, Instagram, I'm, I follow a few guys um, that, you know, put video footage up and they get video footage from like the Ukraine and the soldiers there and like head cam footage and all that sort of thing. It's kind of cool to watch because... Um, it's it puts kind of like the human and being being in those people's kind of shoes element but then on the flip side of it as well it, it's just it's horrific what what we do as humans we do to do to each other and you know that's coming from a guy that's you know being involved in those kind of situations and i i kind of felt the same way when i was when i was away i've seen some people do some do some horrific things um yeah. to other people and i'm like well why do you need to do that why do you need to go any further than what you actually you know, necessarily need to do kind of like your yeah. rules of engagement right but uh, yeah. and uh, and when you see those sort of things that are visually put in front of you that's why i kind of choose not to not to watch it so i don't i don't watch any yeah. normal tv or anything like that i choose what i watch through through other avenues and um you know people might think that well you know you're just burying your head in the sun but at the end of the day if i choose not to watch it then control the control buzz you know foxy talks a lot about that in his talks doesn't he the control what you can control what is within your grasp and you can't affect what's happening out there you can't affect what i can't affect what's happening there or northern ireland but i can control the stuff that i watch and the things i read and it's not burying your head in the sand it's self-preservation and I think a lot of veterans will probably be in the same wavelength you know we just because you know 
you can get obsessed with kill TV essentially. And I think that's, you know, I sometimes get sucked in. I had a really bad habit and it was only during my counseling. My counselor talked me out of doing this and it's the best thing I've ever done is that I used to get, I used to set my day up around watching news headlines. So I'd always watch the six o'clock news and have my dinner. And then I'd watch the 10 o'clock news and go to bed. And I realized that the last thing I'm injecting into my eyeballs and in my ears before bedtime every night was usually something really really destructive because I would never stay up to watch the good news story that always is the last thing that goes on the news it's always all the death and destruction all the politics all the bad decisions how the country's falling apart and then towards the end you've got oh you know granny had knitted a a cover for the post box around the corner or something and I never stayed up to to hear that bit so I would really be injecting all this negative activity into my brain and then heading off to bed for the night and so now I don't do it I was turning tv off at 10 o'clock and go to bed and read instead and it's just it's probably very simple thing but it's a proper game changer so for anyone who does the same thing I would suggest don't watch the news before you go to bed for the night <laughs> it's, it used to call it the shit sandwich mm. you got the yeah. good bit on the top the yeah. shit bit in the middle and then a good bit on the bottom so when you debrief someone you you you, you give them bah, a positive oh, point a couple yeah. of bad ones and then a couple of good ones to finish on so they don't feel like they're gonna um yeah, they've been picked on. <laughs> yeah, the old bathtub technique. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I don't watch anywhere near as much news. Certainly this last week, I haven't watched a lot and um and I've been really busy, which helps, I think, just staying out and being busy, um, burying my head in the sand, as we said. <laughs> Let's finish on the high note. What you know, what are you up to at the moment? Um, you've got lots going on. What what are the things that you that you're in, uh, enjoying doing and and what have you got coming up? So I, yeah, I'm off to the Woman of the Year Awards on Monday. So nice frock on for that. And then I'm off to Poland on Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm doing the Global Helicopter Defence Conference after that, which is hilarious because the the lineup for that is like world leaders in defence, you know, the boss of the US Air Force and British commanders. And then Liz McConaughey at the bottom. And I'm like, how am I even on there? This imposter syndrome's kicking in again. Um, so that's going to be mega because I'm actually, was booked months ago for that. And I'm going thinking I'm not going to know anyone. It's in Warsaw in Poland. And when the promo email came out and hit the, the forces, I've had about 20 mates going, oh my God, you're going to be in Poland. So it's going to become a bit of a reunion, which is nice. And then off to Ireland, then we got up to Belfast to do the Veterans Awards. And then Kind of November is really for me mostly about the cenotaph. You know, I'll be going to the cenotaph this year. I was there last year, cried on national TV last year, <laughs> walking past it because the words "the glorious dead." I can never look at those and not be overcome with emotion. Um, because the truth is, you and I both know it's not glorious. Um, dying and we've seen enough of it. But um, so I'll be going to the cenotaph and trying not to cry this year. Um, and then kind of rolling into Christmas. So I've got stuff on pretty much every week from now till then, and I'll see what happens when the uh, paperback comes out because hopefully that's going to be in actual bookstores where you can buy it because people like Waterstones and stuff like that don't necessarily stock paperbacks of first authors so my book hasn't even had the chance to go to an airport yet and be picked up by a random person walking past it so I'm hoping that that'll uh, sort of up the footprint a bit more um, and yeah just living this mad fairy go round as every day as it comes yeah Liz it's been amazing talking to you again yeah. Let, let's just hope this saves on my desktop so we don't have to do it for a third time. I'll come visit next time with the surfboard because I can't surf. So I'll come learn how to surf and we'll do it live down there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'd be happy with that. Um, Liz, thanks very much for uh, talking to me on the podcast and uh, I appreciate your time. Very welcome. See you later. See you later. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. 
and leave us a little review if you have time. Thanks for listening.